This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be looking this evening at verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. 6, 14 through 7, 1. Hear the word of God. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light? With darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your grace, for the assistance of your Holy Spirit as we turn to your word this evening. And here in this late hour of the day, we pray for uh, clear minds to be able to think the thoughts of Scripture. We pray that you would teach us by your Spirit and by your word, for we ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. When we come to a passage like this, especially the first verse, it's so familiar. It's easy sometimes to read the passage, to read the verse, without really thinking what it means. We tend to assume what it means. And so when we come to this passage and it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, it's talking about what? Non-Christians, what about them? How is this passage most often used? In marriage, yeah. Now, show me in 2 Corinthians where Paul's talking about marriage. Does this passage have anything to do with marriage? Well, of course. Uh, However, uh, we tend to assume that without really stopping and thinking, well, what is he talking about here? Uh, It's one of the basic foundations in studying the Bible and studying a passage is is to be aware of your own presuppositions, that is, your own ideas that you bring to the text. Uh, You can't ever get rid of them entirely, but being aware of them helps us then to kind of clear the deck and be able to maybe to hear what it's saying in in a new and hopefully more accurate way. Uh, When you uh, study biblical interpretation, uh, the, the, the basic principle is that a scripture passage has one meaning. Maybe you've been part of the Bible study where you get in a group and you go, well, what does it mean to you? Well, to me it means, you know, that 
this, or, or to me it means this. Well, it means one thing. It means what, what Paul meant to say, what Paul had in mind. That's the meaning. Now, uh, a text has one meaning, but it can have many different applications. And you don't want to get those confused. It has many meanings in one application. Uh, the only time it might have multiple meanings is maybe where there's a play on words or in a poetic section where there's sort of a double entendre, a double meaning, or a prophetic meaning. Yeah, we talked about the sacrificial lamb in the Old Testament. Um, you know, We want to understand its context, but it also is pointing to Christ. But typically a passage means what the author intended it to mean. All uh, fads of literary deconstructionism today to the contrary. Well, Paul starts out here by saying, after this appeal that he's made to them, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then goes on into the list. Well, the imperative here, the instruction is not to be unequally yoked. Now, as we look at this, the whole passage itself is a call to holiness. Um, Paul is, is appealing to the Corinthian believers to holiness. Uh, as Christians, we know that we're supposed to live holy lives. We know the verse in Hebrews that says, you know, that refers to seeking peace with all men and the holiness without which uh, anyone will see the Lord. Well, Paul's making an argument for holiness here in, in two senses. One sense is its basic foundational sense of being set apart from, distinct from, or different from. And the other sense follows from it, and that has to do with the ethical sense of what it means to live a holy life. So Paul is appealing here for us to, as Christians, live holy lives. One thing, as he, he says in these first few verses, only holiness is consistent with who we are. Only holiness is consistent with who we are as Christians. Now, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Uh, well, what does he mean here? What does he mean talking about? Well, frequently he's warned them of the danger of these false teachers, of these false apostles, and not only putting themselves forward, but at the same time questioning Paul, questioning his credentials, trying to undermine his influence with this church. And, and repeatedly he has warned either directly or indirectly about them. And he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And I think that's who he's pointing to here. Now, to be yoked, of course, if you have two oxen side by side, you have the wood yoke that links them together, and they're working together, pulling together, and they need to be comparable, or you get a great imbalance. Now, I think Paul is, is, is warning these, uh, these believers against being yoked together in the church with these false teachers because of the damage that they will do to the church, because of the influence that they will have in terms of their doctrine, in terms of their morals. And the basis of, of Paul's warning is certainly borne out in, uh, in church history. As time and again, uh, you see churches that are influenced by unbelievers um, who, who, who then spread their teaching in the church, influence other people, and and uh, certainly the PCA exists because of that happening in our former denomination. And it can be a very subtle thing. You have, have, a, have a loved son of the church goes off to some big theological seminary, and while he's there, he uh, abandons, he's taught all kind of 
wrong stuff about the Bible, higher critical thinking and so forth, and he, he uh, jettisons biblical faith, or at least a veneer of it, or uh, the profession of it, and he buys into all of these things, and yet he, he keeps his vocabulary intact, talks about the resurrection, talks about new life in Jesus, and uh, means something entirely different by it, but it sounds good, and the unsuspecting churches caught off guard and even if they do know well you know he's he's from our church he's one of us uh, that that happens uh, often it starts with the seminaries in fact in the old southern presbyterian church the presbyterian church us from which the pca came uh, there was a society secret society back in the 40s whose purpose was to influence the seminaries and therefore influence the church uh, in a more liberal direction well, that, I think, is the primary meaning. I think those are the people Paul has in mind when he's saying, look, you can't join forces with them. You can't work with them. You can't tolerate having them in your midst and give them credibility by linking up with them and trying to do the work of the church because they're going in one direction and you're supposed to be going in another. See, they're heading off in a wrong way, both in terms of their doctrine and in terms of their morals. Now, by extension... Uh, this certainly applies to how, as believers, we should be careful about those with whom we unite, those with whom we try to pull together. In fact, as early as uh, Calvin's days, back in the 1500s, I was looking at Calvin's commentary on Second Corinthians, and he, he notes that most people see this as referring to marriage. So even in his day, that, that connection was there, and this was a, a common verse used to warn people against being married, believers being married to unbelievers. Certainly that's true. Remember in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that a Christian woman, if her husband dies, is free to remarry, only she must remarry in the Lord. In other words, she must marry only a believer. Well, at the same time, he says if, you're, if you become a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, you should stay in the relationship if the unbeliever is willing to continue with you. So this, yes, certainly can apply to marriage. A, a, a Christian young person would be foolish to marry an unbeliever. Two entirely different sets of values, of way of looking at the world, allegiances, loyalties, moralities, how they're going to raise their children, how they're going to spend their Sabbath day, all of these kinds of things that, that create conflict. Uh, it's been uh, also applied in the realm of business, that, that believers should be very careful about engaging in uh, partnerships with unbelievers. Again, again, because there's a different way of looking at the world, a different value system. Uh, a Christian should always value integrity over profit. An unbeliever may not be so bound. Uh, so just to avoid conflict. Now, of course, Paul is not saying here uh, that we should avoid contact with the world. In fact, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, he says, you know, he's not saying that we should come out of the world, uh, but rather, uh, you know, to avoid contact with unbelievers we would have to but look at what he says this is first corinthians 5 verses 9 through 10 and i think it backs up this interpretation here in second corinthians what i'm saying uh first corinthians 5 verse 9 paul says i wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality, or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. 
What do I have to do with judging outsiders? It's not not those inside the church whom you were to judge. And so I think Paul is writing there, not just a people, not just of a Christian in the church who's caught up in some sin, but again with an eye toward false teachers whose teaching condones, even promotes that kind of thing. Paul's saying, no. You know, I'm not saying you can't associate with people in the world who didn't. Obviously, they're going to live this way. They're not Christians. But I'm saying someone in the church who's teaching that you can live this way or they themselves live this way without repentance. Okay, I think Paul would apply the same teaching to those who would promote homosexuality as a valid lifestyle for Christians within the church, uh, a valid lifestyle for those whom they would put in leadership in the church. And Paul would never say someone who struggles with that, who's repenting of it, you know, who's fallen back into it, wants out of it. He's saying those who would promote such a thing. That would be a modern case of the kind of thing that Paul is describing here. Paul is saying don't be yoked together with them. People who are promoting what is wrong, who are teaching what is wrong, allowing what is wrong. So that's the imperative, not to be unequally yoked with those teaching falsehood in the church uh, or with, with unbelievers generally. We certainly could say by application, by extension. But now he gives some grounds, basically rhetorical questions. And the answer is obvious, but he, he makes his point. Uh, he gives this imperative, but then why? Well, he says, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Well, none. We are righteous in Christ in our justification. We are to be growing in righteousness in Christ in our sanctification. But the unbeliever and the false teachers with whom Paul was dealing were not so bound. Their lives were characterized by lawlessness. In fact, their theology justifies lawlessness. John tells us that sin is lawlessness. Sin is uh, an unwillingness to... Bear the yoke of the law. And so he says, what partnership can these two have? They're they're so different. How can they work together? Well, he says, what fellowship has light with darkness? Again, just utter opposites, two extremes. As Christians, we are in the light. Uh, We've been given the light. We walk in the light. Paul himself said in chapter 4, verse 6, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. With these false teachers, with other unbelievers, they are still in darkness. They don't know Christ. They're still in darkness. Their hearts are in darkness. Their whole worldview is in darkness. They're still in their sins. He goes on to ask, what accord has Christ with Belial? Belial was a commonly known name referring to Satan, to the accuser. He's saying, what, what, what accord, what cooperation can Christ have with the devil? Well, we saw in uh, Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. Uh, not much, not any. Uh, again, heading in two different directions. You know, what a shocking thought that there could be a compact, there could be a contract, an agreement between Christ and the devil. And yet, that's what Paul is warning them against from being involved with these false teachers in the church. He goes on, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Um, Well, none. Our portion, which is another way of saying our inheritance, is in heaven. Uh, We just sang earlier, uh, the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, it's based on... um, 
Lamentations chapter 3, verse 23. But the next verse says, well, verse, chapter 3, verse 23, um, referring to the mercies of God, uh, they never come to end. Verse 23 says, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. By portion there, it's the way of thinking of that would be as our inheritance. What is ours? What we have coming to us? Our inheritance is in heaven, and our inheritance ultimately is the Lord himself. Uh, to know him, to be with him. And so Paul says, what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Well, none. The believer has no share in Christ. The believer has no, the unbeliever has no portion uh, in, in, in heaven. Rather, his portion is the wrath of God. His portion is is hell uh, again heading in two different directions and then finally ask what agreement has the temple of god with idols what an abhorrent thought yet the temple was defiled and you know, idols were set up the images of pigs in the temple uh, well what a hard thought the temple of god is not the place for idols and idolatry uh, and again, we're talking about 180 degrees opposite, two different directions uh, from each other. And Paul goes on in verse, four, in, uh, verse uh, 16 to say, for we are the temple of God. Now, we looked, uh, I believe last week, uh, when Christ was talking about destroying this temple. Uh, and I will rebuild it in three days. The concept of the temple kind of traced that briefly through the scriptures. But in, a, in, in 1 Corinthians, when Paul writes to the believers, Corinth, he says in chapter 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? The you is plural. In other words, you all as a church are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple taken collectively. And then we saw in chapter 6, verse 20, where he can say to them individually, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? And so here again, Paul can say, for we are the temple of the living God. We collectively, as a congregation of believers, the Spirit of God dwells in our midst. And also we individually, as believers, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and dwelling within us, then he is in our midst. And so Paul can say, what... Uh, what agreement has the temple of God with, you know, the, the temple of Artemis or Diana? Uh, none. And the temple of God is not a place for idols. So he he's saying here that only holiness, being set apart, distinct from the world, distinct from these false teachers, and certainly not being married to unbelievers, certainly not... Uh, being a position to be influenced and steered by unbelievers uh, is is inconsistent with that. Only holiness, being set apart, is consistent with who we are. Who are we? Well, we are righteousness. We are light. We are in Christ. We are believers, not unbelievers. We are the temple of God, not temples of idolatry, uh, at least in our best state by God's grace, and becoming more so as he sanctifies us. But that is who we are in Christ. So only holiness is consistent with who we are. Uh, but then he goes on to say only holiness is consistent with what we are. And he goes on in these verses uh, as the people of God. 
to describe in these quotations from the Old Testament, 16, 17, and 18, uh, our identity as the people of God. And look at what he says there in verse, uh, verse 16. Uh, Paul says, we're the temple of God, and he quotes these, these references from the Old Testament. Some of them, uh, the first two can be fairly well pinpointed. Uh, the, the third really is more of a collation of some different texts that Paul brings together to make his point. Uh, but he says, uh, I will make my dwelling among them, walk among them, I'll be their God, they shall be my people. That from Leviticus chapter 26, uh, Paul is, is still kind of on the idea of, of us as the temple, the dwelling place of God. God in our midst, I will be their God, they will be my people, that covenant relationship. God dwells in the midst of his people. Uh, verse 17 Quotation from Isaiah 52, verse 11. Therefore, by the way, the therefore is Paul's. Paul cites one scripture and he says, therefore, and makes the application another scripture. Uh, this is true, as Paul typically argues with his own words. Here he's just taking the words of the Old Testament. He builds an argument with them. Uh, because God says this in verse 16, therefore, and the quotation begins with the word go, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Uh, the, the context there, the idea of coming out from, from the, the, the nations in which they were surrounded, in which they were in exile, uh, coming out, being separate, being distinct, uh, not being polluted, uh, touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Uh, our identity is the people of God. He's our dwelling place, our covenant relationship with him, the call to be separate. And we've got to be careful there. Because, again, as we've seen, Paul is not saying you have to leave the world. I mean, Christians have tried that and, and failed to be salt and light because they do that. Uh, it, it's very hard. It's like saying swim in the water but don't get wet. It's like saying work in the garden but don't get dirty. Uh, it requires God's grace. Because we are in the world, we can't leave the world. We will be, to some degree, affected by the world. And yet we also are to be distinct from the world. All too often, Christians have not done a very good job of that. And that a long history of not doing a very good job of that. You go back to the Old Testament. God says, here, I'll make you a light for the nations. And immediately the nations put the light out and Israel becomes like the nations around them. Okay, it wasn't quite immediate, but it took a dismayingly short period of time before Israel was no better than the nations around them. Tragically, statistically, you look at various measurements of Christians professing believers in the world around us, and Old Testament history seems to repeat itself. We wind up looking a lot like the nations around us rather than being a light to the nations, to the people around us. Uh, but Paul's quoting, because God makes these promises in verse 16, therefore we are to be distinct, we're to be separate, not haughty, not proud, not arrogant, not pharisaical, looking down our noses at the people around us, but being careful that the people around us don't determine and shape how we live, but rather that God's word does. Well, and he goes on in verse um, 18, which is a kind of a collection of ideas from Isaiah 43, 6, 2 Samuel 7, uh, 8 and 14. Uh, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And so Paul, in verse 16, these promises of God, he will be in our midst, we'll be in relationship with him. He's our God, we're his people. Therefore, Paul says, Quoting Isaiah, we're to be distinct from and separate from the world, 
in terms of our behavior, in terms of the way we live, and God's promise that he will be our father, that we will be his sons and daughters, uh, not just in terms of the reality of the relationship, but in terms of our likeness to our heavenly father, says the Lord Almighty. So this holiness to which God calls us is, con- is only holiness. Uh, it's consistent with who we are. It's consistent with what we are as the people of God. Uh, how can we call God our Father and yet look like the world? But it also is consistent with whose we are. And this follows on those verses. Chapter 7, verse 1. And Paul wraps up his, his thought here. Since we have these promises, beloved... Uh, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Only holiness is consistent with whose we are, since we have these promises, since we belong to the Lord. And he basically gives two motives here. One is the promises of God. Since we have these promises, since God has promised to be a father to us, since he has promised to be our God and to graciously let us be his People, Since he's promised to be in our midst, to, to walk among us, to be present with us. Since all these things are true, Paul says we ought to be careful to do these things. But he also gives another motive. The first, the first motive is at the beginning of the verse. The second motive he gives is at the, at the end of the verse. To complete, bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. It's one of those words that uh, you can take in a couple of ways. Um, certainly um, we are to obey God out of reverence for him. But there should also be a, a sense of fear before God. Not because, you know, not because we're afraid of going to hell, but we're afraid of, of displeasing God. We're afraid of his displeasure and our disobedience, our being like the, the world. It's the fear you, know, you felt as a child when your mother says, you wait till your father gets home. And that's a scary thought. Uh, but Paul gives that as a motive. Uh, out of this fear, which certainly, yes, is a reverential and awe-filled respect for God who has done so much for us. But those are the motives. The promises that God has made in his grace. The, the fear of God that we have in our heart because of who he is as the holy God. But that leads to action. He mentions a couple of things here. Uh, because these are true, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. Uh, the word body there is the word flesh, uh, which for Paul sometimes takes the meaning something akin to our sinful nature. Um, but here, because it's put in contrast to spirit, probably is referring just to the body. Uh, probably an accurate translation on the part of the ESV there, every defilement of body and spirit. The body sins are really the easier ones. They're the outward ones. They're the ones that we either do or we don't. The spirit ones are sometimes harder, uh, the inner sins that can be so subtle and deeply rooted and not even seen by or known by other people. Uh, but the, the things that take place within, the thoughts, attitudes of our heart, but those things that God nevertheless still sees. And uh, as we talked about with the Sermon on the Mount, really the place uh, that is the root of real righteousness, the, the heart, our inner being, our spirit. But we are to be diligent to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit because we have the promises of God. In the conference where we were this weekend, 
uh, the, the, the theme of it was how grace changes men and a strong emphasis placed on the fact that obedience grows out of the fact that God loves us, not the reverse. We, we, we obey because we've been saved, uh, because God's accepted us in Christ and not the other. We don't obey in order to be saved. All the performance is Christ's and that's already done and is already secure. But, and then you see that pattern here. Uh, we have these promises since we have these promises. Since God has done this, promised this, therefore let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. But that's an active thing. Uh, very different from a passive, uh, here God fix me kind of mentality. Uh, it does imply active effort, fighting against our sin, striving to put de- sin to death, as Paul says, in, in both body and spirit. It's not enough just to say, well, I'm, you know, doing okay on the outside, but on the inside I hate people, I'm proud, I'm, you know, self-centered, idolatrous. That's horrible. Body and spirit. And then he goes on to, to make this expression, it's somewhat curious, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You know, when I think of that, the only association that really comes to mind of anything similar to that in the Bible is Philippians 1, where Paul says that God, who has begun a good work in us, will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Uh, And I think you do have both sides of sanctification here, of God's grace at work in us, but also our efforts at fighting against our sin. And when Paul says bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, what is that completion? Well, maybe he's referring back to what he just said, body and spirit. Not not being content with a mere outward conformity, but a a desire for a real inner holiness, a love for God's law. Obeying not just because we're afraid we'll get caught or because someone's watching, but because we want to. But it also, I think, does have a view toward the end. Just like Philippians 1, Paul talks about God bringing to completion that work of salvation he began in us. Well, holiness is not something we will ever complete here in this world. There won't be some, you know, Thursday afternoon in the year 2015, we suddenly realize you've achieved holiness. You're there. You've arrived. You know, Uh, it's not going to happen unless that's the day you die and you are in the presence of Christ himself and are glorified. Uh, Completion only happens when we're with Christ in heaven. And so Paul is saying that this is something we strive for, something we uh, work at, our sin that we fight against until that day that we are with him in glory because of the promises of God. So this is called a holiness um, in this unholy world because, after all, as Paul, Paul argues, only holiness is consistent with who we are. Only holiness is consistent with what we are, and only holiness is consistent with whose we are. May God in his grace make us holy and give us grace to fight for holiness. Let's pray. Father, we do live in an unholy world, and what's worse, we have unholy fallen natures, uh, and the residual effects of that are still there in spite of the new life that we have in us. But, Father, we thank you for the desire to be obedient. Thank you even, Lord, for the discouragement we feel when we sin. That we're not happy with sin. That we're not comfortable with our sin. But, Father, we pray that you would give us grace, as we've learned in this passage, to bring holiness to completion. To be very concerned, Lord, 
to be pure in mind, in heart, in body, in the way we talk, things we say, things we don't say, things we think and don't think, things we do, things we don't do. But Father, help us, especially if we see some growth there, to couple that with a deep humility, not to be proud, not to be condescending or contemptuous toward others who are caught in sin and unbelievers. Father, we of all people should be most humble because we know, as Paul says, what do we have that we have not received. But Father, make us holy. Make us holy. Make me holy as you are holy. We want to be like you, our Father in heaven. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.